Our text this morning is from Matthew 27, and I've mentioned before what a blessing it is that the Lord in his wisdom and grace has given us four gospels, and uh, like a diamond, they allow us to see various facets of our Lord's life and ministry, and without any one of them, our grasp of his person and work would be uh, much poorer. Again, Matthew, uh, an eyewitness as an apostle, writing especially for his own Jewish people to demonstrate and convince them that uh, Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled Old Testament prophecy because he was and is uh, the Messiah, the promised son of David. Uh, Matthew is one of what we call the synoptic gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that synoptic comes from a Greek word which means uh, with the same eye. Their basic approach, each one's unique and has its special emphases and message, but uh, they approach the, the ministry, life and ministry of our Lord from the same perspective. John's gospel is very different. Uh, it was written apparently significantly later, and I think in all likelihood because John, the apostle, was familiar with the other three gospels, and was moved by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel and to supplement, to add a great deal. There's more unique material in John than in any of the other gospels uh, to supplement those other gospels. And um, uh, again, I've mentioned before, the gospels never contradict each other. They complement each other. And by comparing the four gospels, accounts of our Lord's death, we learn that he spoke at least seven times from the cross. Um, none of the Gospels gives us all of his sayings in, this, in one Gospel. We have to compare and combine them. I've taken the title for my sermon from a saying of Jesus, which only John gives us in 1930 of his Gospel. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And these words, it is finished, seem to me to be an apt description of the climax and the culmination of Jesus' ministry, which we find here uh, in the text of Matthew. So I want you to understand why I've used that title, even though it's not in our text. But with that said, uh, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles now to Matthew 27 and verse 45. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of God. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
So when the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That's what the Lord said to Moses when he appeared to him in the burning bush. And it seems to me that it's very applicable as we approach our text this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is holy ground. What we have just read and what we're going to reflect on together this morning is one of the most profound events in the history of the entire universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that has been made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of God. This is who we just read about in our text, hanging naked. Nails. Nailed in his hands and his feet to a cross. Surrounded by scoffers. Suffering and dying for us. So then, even though this is a very familiar subject to most of us, let us come to it this morning with fresh reverence and also with wonder and gratitude and faith and love as we consider the death of the Son of God for us. I think these 11 verses have to be some of the richest verses in the whole Bible, so we can't do anything but skim the surface this morning. But I'm going to suggest to you four points, and the first one is this. Three notable events occurred before it was finished. Three notable events occurred before it was finished. And the first one, Matthew Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sun was blotted out from noon to 3 p.m. When our Lord was born, God sent a sign of light. That miraculous star that led the wise men first to Jerusalem and then to the stable in Bethlehem. And when he died... His death was accompanied by a miraculous darkness. And it occurred at noon where the sun is at its highest and its light is brightest. It says, it could be translated, it covers all the land at the very least. Many think it, it, it covered the whole earth. And there are some old writers, some ancient fathers who writing to uh, secular opponents cited secular references to a mysterious period of darkness. But in, at the very least, it covered the whole land. And it could not possibly have been an eclipse. 
The Passover occurs at the time of full moon. There's no possibility of an eclipse. And an eclipse, a full eclipse, only lasts for a few minutes, not three hours. It was a miraculous darkness which God cast over this scene for three hours. You think of Exodus where the Lord uh, caused it to be dark over the whole land of Egypt several days. So that's the first thing, this miraculous darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Secondly, at about 3 p.m., our Lord quotes Psalm 22, 1. And about the ninth hour, verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the Gospels indicate that our Lord was on the cross for approximately six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And I've wondered in the past, why six hours? Uh, did it take six hours to fully atone for our sins? Um, again, I don't think we can answer that question uh, decisively, but it's interesting to note that God prescribed back in the book of Exodus daily sacrifices, a morning and an evening sacrifice of a lamb without blemish. And by this point in Israel's history, the morning sacrifice was offered at 9 a.m. and the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. And so as our Lord was nailed to the cross, they were offering that first morning sacrifice. We don't know for sure, but there's good archaeological evidence to argue that, um, uh, that uh, uh, the hill of Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, was outside the wall of Jerusalem, where it was then, just opposite the temple. And when they offered the morning and evening sacrifice in the temple, one of the priests would sound the shofar, the ram's horn. And you could have heard that if, if this archaeological evidence is reliable. They could have heard that as Jesus was being nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock, the, the, the ram's horn sounding the morning sacrifice, and at 3 p.m. when he died, the evening sacrifice. Again, comparing the Gospels, it seems that our Lord spoke three times during the light. The first three hours when, uh, when the darkness had not yet fallen, first he prayed for the forgiveness of those who were executed. And Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. At some point, he saw his mother and John, his beloved disciple, near the foot of the cross, and he entrusted uh, her to John's care. And we're told that John took her in. After that, and treated her as his own mother and cared for. And the third saying in the light was when the, the penitent thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Apparently, those three sayings were spoken during the light in those first three hours. And apparently, for the three hours of darkness, our Lord said nothing until right at the end, where we are here the ninth hour, three o'clock. And we're told, Matthew tells us, again, he's particularly writing for Jews about Christ fulfilling the scriptures. He tells us, he quoted from Psalm 22, 1, a text written a thousand years before the time of Christ. Certainly, probably something in David's life moved him to do this, some situation where he felt forsaken, but obviously it, it applied, guided by the Holy Spirit, much more Christ was the real fulfillment of those words which we read a little earlier in our service. Jesus, 
in some remarkable way, and it's, it's mysterious, we can't fully grasp it, in some remarkable way, the one who had been loved by the Father from all eternity was forsaken. The Father turned away from him so that we're told in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. Brothers and sisters, in our Savior's death is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, the Day of Atonement, all the Old Testament sacrifice. I've already mentioned the daily morning and evening sacrifice. And here's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds or by his scourging, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again, I don't think we can fully understand what happened. I don't think in a sense we need to. John Calvin thought in the Apostles' Creed when it says he descended into hell, Calvin took that to be a reference that on the cross, our Lord Jesus went through hell. In some mysterious but real way. Again, one of the terrors of hell is going to be the complete absence of the presence of God except as an object of his displeasure and judgment. And in some mysterious and terrible way, that's what our Lord experienced in those hours. So that's a second thing that happened before it was finished. And the third... Psalm 69, 21 was fulfilled when they gave him sour wine to drink. Verse 47, some of the bystanders hearing it, when he cried out, Eli, Eli, apparently uh, he, he called out, my God, my God, in Hebrew, and the second part was in Aramaic. Uh, there's questions about, uh, you know, again, whether they uh, misunderstood or did it intentionally. They said, this man is calling Elijah, and there was... Uh, uh, among uh, the Jews, a uh, 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 legend anticipation that somehow Elijah was going to come uh, to reveal the Messiah. And so um, one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. That may have been one of the soldiers. There was sour wine there, and this was a wine that the Roman soldiers and, and common people typically drank. It wasn't good wine. And some think that one of the soldiers may have taken a reed and dipped it in, in their wine and held it up to him. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. John says in 1928 that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I told you, Jesus apparently made at least three statements in the light. And here at the end of the darkness... Matthew just tells us he cried with a loud voice and mentioned specifically Psalm 22.1. But John fills in, apparently at the end, he did several things. He cited that scripture. It's a 
applicable to him. Apparently, he also said, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. And as a result of that, perhaps one of the soldiers who was right at the foot of the cross at least gave him this, this sour wine. But Psalm 69, 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So here's another prophetic scripture fulfilled in his being given that sour wine. Brothers and sisters, as we think about these three things that happened beforehand, behold what a terrible, what an awesome occasion it was that the Lord blotted the sun out completely for three hours as Jesus atoned for our sins. Darkness is often associated with the judgment of God. Some have said, well, the sun couldn't bear to look on the sufferings of its creator. That may have been part of it. But part of it also, this, this anticipation, this expression of God's judgment on our Savior there in the dark. And may we never think about it or contemplate it without great reverence as we think about, but even though it's, and because it can be so familiar, to think and talk about these events with great reverence. Behold also, and I, again, I don't know how much overlap there will be between this sermon and what you heard last Lord's Day. Brad alluded to this in his prayer, but I would say that this shows us, among other things as well, the vileness and the wickedness of sin. That nothing but the suffering of the Son of God, the forsaking of the beloved Son by his loving Father could atone for it. Nothing less. An archangel couldn't do it. Thomas Kelly writes, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view it rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. We live in a culture that increasingly scoffs at or denies the whole idea of sin. It's been called the culture of the sovereign self. Every person determines their own reality. Their gender, so many other, some people think they're cats. We've heard of public schools where they have litter boxes for kids who've decided they're cats. And the idea of sin is increasingly ridiculous to so many people. And sadly, even the church is affected by this diminishing of the seriousness, the vileness, the wickedness the reality of sin. May the Lord grant us where we need to, to repent and to recover more and more a proper biblical grasp of the, the reality and the true wickedness and vileness of the nature of sin. And why is sin so vile? It's because God is so glorious, so holy, so good, even so wise. His commandments, we're told again and again in Deuteronomy, are for our good. 
And if we really believe that he's wise and that his commandments for our good, when we deny that, when we think we're wiser than he, we despise him. Sin because it's against such a glorious and holy God. That's what makes it not only so destructive, but so wicked. And it's his justice that requires that sin, because it is so terrible, justice is that trait that requires guilt to be punished and punished appropriately. We have, in our law system, we have uh, various penalties for various crimes. Some crimes are worse than others, and some merit worse punishment than others. Justice punishes guilt as it deserves to be punished. And God is perfectly and absolutely just. The Heidelberg Catechism says that God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Hell is so terrible because sin is so vile and wicked because it's against uh, not only a holy, a just, but a wise and a gracious God. And behold, one more profound Actually, two. I've mentioned two more fulfillments of prophetic scripture in our Lord Jesus, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. So just before it was finished, several notable events occurred to set the stage for what was about to happen. That brings us to our second point, and that is two notable events occurred as it was finished. Two notable events occurred as it was finished. Verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now that in itself is remarkable. Brothers and sisters, you know that people who were crucified died from asphyxiation. They're hanging, uh, and sometimes they would put a seat under them, which was not so much a mercy, it prolonged the whole process, but hanging uh, with the, their weight on their shoulders, and, 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 and they would have to push up to take a breath, and of course, that put pressure on their, their nailed feet. It was agonizing, so they breathed as, as little as possible. For him to cry out with a loud cry was remarkable. And I think it showed that he, for all of his suffering, still was in control and still had power and energy. He cried out with a loud voice. And here again, Matthew tells us about the quote from Psalm 22. John fills in, uh, again, I think I've already read that to you about where he said, I thirst. And then John 19.30, when he had received the sour wine, Jesus said, it is finished and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It's only one word in Greek. It is finished. And we found it written on tax receipts. It can mean paid in full. Luke tells us apparently the final word, and all of these were in quick succession, right at the end of the three hours of darkness. Luke 23, 46, Jesus calling with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Interestingly, Psalm 31.5 says, uh, Jesus is quoting Psalm 31.5, a psalm of David. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And I read one comment that said, that's what the priest said at the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. 
That verse was quoted. And our Lord quotes it as he dies at 3 p.m. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So that's the first of the two notable things. Jesus spoke and actually said these several things in close succession. I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the second thing here, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Our Lord died physically. But he had said back in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. He's talking about himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Apparently, again, this is a profoundly mysterious. But apparently our Lord, having gone through the suffering, having atoned and, and finished the work of suffering, knowing it was finished, dismissed his spirit. He died and entrusted his soul to the father. Again, as the shofar was sounding and apparently as the darkness disappeared and the light came again after he died. And brothers and sisters, behold, the wisdom and grace of God in the wonderful sufficiency of Jesus' atonement, it is finished, paid in full. The debt that nothing but eternal suffering in hell could repay, and it won't fully repay it, that's why it will be eternal, has been paid. Behold the wonderful safety and security of those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. To be justified is a legal standing. It means to be declared by a judge righteous. Not guilty. Not subject to any further punishment. And that's a part I only read up from part of chapter 10 of Hebrews. I could have started earlier for the sake of time. I didn't, but in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, one of the big emphases of the whole book is because of that once for all sacrifice. That's why there's no more need for sacrifices. That's why we have bloodless sacraments in the Christian church. They symbolize blood, but we don't shed any blood. The blood's been shed once for all. How secure we are if we belong to Jesus Christ. Our sins have been paid for fully. Neither that's an excuse to sin, it's an incentive for us to cultivate righteousness. Notice again the way the Old Testament scripture focused on and was fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. Virtually everything he said here, these last several sayings. Notice, too, the temporary and imperfect nature of the Old Covenant. Now, it was divinely inspired. We have to be careful. Sometimes in the New Testament, Paul and other writers criticizing Judaizers uh, sometimes talk about the law in, in, in a negative way. Uh, we have to remember, and the writer of the Hebrews makes this point, uh, the Old Covenant law, the sacrificial system, were given by God and rightly used in their time. They, they, they honored him and they... they uh, Provided, but they were always imperfect and only temporary. But now, and that's the argument of Hebrews, now the perfect has come. And we live under the perfect covenant, the new covenant through Christ, our great high priest. So besides the notable events that preceded his death, there were two more which occurred simultaneously with it. But even that's not all. 
Our third point is that four notable events occurred after it was finished. Four notable events occurred after it was finished. Verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So four notable events that occurred afterwards, and almost immediately afterwards, some would suggest virtually simultaneously with Jesus' death. The first is the temple curtain torn in two. Now, this is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. And at this point in Israel's history, of course, originally in the tabernacle in the first temple, uh, there was an Ark of the Covenant and Shekinah uh, glory that appeared there. Uh, only the, the high priest could go in there and only once a year on the Day of Atonement to, to sprinkle blood. And he went in and did that as quickly as possible. He had bells on his uh, robe so they could hear he was moving around. He hadn't died, hadn't been struck dead. They would tie a rope to his leg so if necessary they could pull him out. But at this point, uh, the... the Ark of the Covenant's destroyed. There's no Shekinah, but there's still this most holy place that represents the, the presence of God. And this curtain, which was uh, 80 to 90 feet high, 25 feet wide, and some have suggested a foot thick. If we don't know all the details, it was quite a curtain. And simultaneously or immediately after Jesus gave up his, his, his spirit, that curtain was rent from top to bottom by an invisible hand, the hand of God. The second thing was this earthquake. And it was not a minor earthquake. This was not a tremor. Think in terms of Sinai uh, when he says, um, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The word for rocks there is not the word for boulders or small rocks. It's, it's the, the word for cliffs and rock faces. This was a major earthquake. Thirdly, and Matthew's the only one who mentions this, the mysterious but clearly miraculous uh, opening of tombs and resurrection of saints. Now again, uh, commentators debate. It says that they were raised at this point, the tombs were open, but they didn't go into Jerusalem until after the resurrection. Uh, there are some details about this that we just can't be sure of, but certainly uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this seems to have been a sign which pointed to that reality, the raising of these dead believers. And then fourthly, the centurion's confession. Now a centurion, uh, the centurions were said to be the backbone of the Roman army. Each one commanded a hundred soldiers, so they were experienced. These were not newbies not freshly appointed second lieutenants or uh, ensigns, but um, these were experienced soldiers. They had seen battle. He'd seen lots of crucifixions. He was tough and hardened. But this was unlike any crucifixion this centurion had ever seen. It probably began at the very beginning 
when our Lord Jesus, we don't know, but I think it's virtually certain when they came to nail him to the cross, he laid down and stretched out. You know, typically people would fight to the very last minute and typically they would have soldiers stand on the arms and legs so they could drive in the nails. But our Savior, after Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done, we see him in perfect submission, submitting to his arrest, not saying much at his trial. And, and so he was resigned. This was the Father's will. That was probably the first thing. And then he hears him pray for those who are nailing to the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise and not reviling. As the people are mocking him and shouting at him, Jesus doesn't return in kind. No doubt these things had already struck him as remarkable. But then that darkness and his final words and the earthquake, and we're told this centurion and his fellow soldiers felt, it's translated awe sometimes, fear in others. And they no doubt had some idea that this man uh, claimed to be, was supposed to be in some way the son of God. These are Gentiles, they're not Jews, but surely they heard that that was part of the issue, part of why he's uh, being executed here. Early tradition tells us the centurion's name. Longinus, or Longinus, I don't speak Latin, so you Latin scholars can help with the pronunciation. And early tradition says that he became a believer, that this was a confession of faith, at least on his part. Assuming that's true, he would have been the first fruit of the Gentiles, converted right at the foot of the cross at the death of our Savior. And again, brothers and sisters, I've said it before, but I bears repeating, this underscores the profound significance of this event as evidenced by not the things that happened just before and during, but these miracles afterward. Behold the profound results of Jesus' death and the privileges that we enjoy as New Testament believers. Access granted God. That's the point of the tearing of the temple, that, that barrier which in the past held out even the priest, even the high priest, except for one short time a year, is now open to everyone. What is Hebrews 4.15 said? Let us come with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace. The throne of heaven is for us a throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Why? Because we have a sympathetic high priest. And again, chapter 10, the part of the portion of chapter 10 that I read talks about that as well. Death abolished and life and immortality brought to light by those disciples raised. And then the fuller inclusion of the nations among the covenant people. And brothers and sisters, this underscores how vitally important it is that every one of us really be in Jesus Christ. Truly converted partakers, genuine partakers of all the benefits of his death and atonement. Remember, even under the Old Testament, the blood had to be applied in order to be efficacious. It wasn't enough just to kill the sacrifice, just to kill the Passover lamb. You had to put that blood on the door of the house. 
It has to be applied. So don't ignore that. If there's any question in your mind, it's one thing to know and believe the facts of the gospel, and that's a blessing, but it's important that those things be uh, vital to our own personal faith and relationship with the Lord. Paul says, Behold, now is a day of salvation. And see what a wonderful message you and I have to share with the world and how desperately the world needs it. So again, in some ways, I think I'm preaching to the choir. I've been very encouraged and appreciative of your heart for uh, missions, your heart for the, the gospel and evangelism. But let me reiterate, if, if you're not already praying, let me encourage you to pray daily for the spread of the gospel in the world. Pray, Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out laborers into his harvest. Claim Matthew 24, 16. That's a promise. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Must be preached in all the world to every nation and then the end will come. I think it's 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Pray that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified around the world. Pray, give as you're able financially and in other ways. If you have other resources that you can give, give and contribute in those various ways. Witness where you are, where the Lord has placed you. Pray for opportunities to tell others about Christ, to reflect him in your life, but also to be able to speak a word. If you've never done it, write your testimony down. You don't have to read it, but write it uh, so you can be succinct and clear in telling your story. How did you come to know Christ and how has that changed your life? Memorize some key verses. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That says it all right there. John 3.16. And carry a gospel tract or tracts with you. Find a tract that you think is clear and communicates and keep one in your purse or pocketbook so that if you don't have a chance to talk to somebody, you can at least give them something to read. Again, we have a remarkable and wonderful message and we need to be faithful in seeing it gets out to the world. And then, maybe I should have mentioned this first instead of last, meditate often on the remarkable and lovable grace of God displayed in this event. Uh, I think Brad mentioned as well in his prayer, he knows everything about us, every hair on our heads. Brothers and sisters, he knows the worst things about you. Your very worst sins, things that you're perhaps too ashamed of even to acknowledge to yourself, much less. He knew all about those, and he loved you. And knowing all of that, he died for you. The Father sent his Son to experience and undergo all of that. And Paul said, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And so that should be a frequent source of meditation, of thanksgiving, an encouragement to our faith and to our love. We love because he first loved us. As we meditate on, contemplate on his love, then that can strengthen our love for him. So in addition to the events that occurred before and as it was finished, additional events of profound significance also occurred immediately afterwards, all of which underscore the profound nature of what was happening. But Matthew notes one more item that we also should note before we conclude. That's my last point this morning. Some notable witnesses observed that it was finished. Some notable witnesses observed 
that it was finished. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There was a company of believing women who apparently uh, began during Jesus' earlier ministry, which focused on Galilee, began to support him in various ways. Some were wealthy, uh, and Luke mentions that in Luke 8.1. Afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, she would have been a wealthy and influential woman, Susanna, and many, many others who provided for them out of their means. So there had been this group of godly, supportive women for some time, and Matthew notes that they were there looking on at the cross. Now he says they looked on from a distance, whether it was through grief, they couldn't bear to be closer and watch it up close, uh, fear whether they were prevented from uh, the mob or the soldiers, but they were there, and John's the only disciple who's mentioned as being there. But these women were there, observing. Brothers and sisters, godly women love Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ loves godly women. It's a wonderful thing. I think the Gospels, Luke especially, uh, in his Gospel, but uh, and all, they stress, I think, the fact that our Lord, in a society where women were often really despised, they really were second-class citizens. Remember, the Samaritan woman said she was surprised that Jesus would even talk to her, because not just because she was a Samaritan, but she was a woman. And yet we see him often engaging women. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus' two sisters, they had an especially close, affectionate relationship. So let me ask the sisters here, uh, women and uh, girls, do you love Jesus Christ this morning? Is he your bridegroom? Through faith, you will never find a better bridegroom and husband than Jesus Christ. So if you've never done it, give him your heart today. Are you growing in your love relationship with him? like these women obviously did, and he with them. And then finally, in his wisdom, he has ordained that women should not be apostles. It's kind of amazing. They, they went to see where he was buried, and on uh, Sunday morning they came. They were there early to, to, to do him honor. They were the first ones, to, they were the witnesses to the resurrection. And when they told the disciples, the disciples didn't believe him. I've always marveled that Jesus, Jesus when he came back after the resurrection, said, I've decided to change some things. And uh, Peter was always mentioned as the first of the, the disciples, the apostles. Mary Magdalene's always mentioned in, first in these lists. Mary, you're going to take over for Peter. And Susanna, you're going to take over for John. But he didn't do that. In spite of their weaknesses and so on, he's ordained that men should be leaders in the church and should be the head of the family. Don't take offense at that as so many do today. Trust his loving wisdom. Embrace his calling of you. Be a vital part of the, the, the church as a wife and a mother. And in the RP, you can be a deaconess. At least I, I think you can. That's apparently being uh, considered or whatever. But the point is, you've got wonderful gifts, dear sisters. 
Surrender those to Christ and use them for his glory. Be women of valor. That's the, that's the Hebrew term in Proverbs 31. It's often translated a, a virtuous woman or an excellent wife. Literally in Hebrew, it means a woman of valor. That's what these women were. I know that's what many of you are. That's what my wife is. And uh, make that your aspiration. So, to review and summarize, three notable events occurred before it was finished. The darkness, quoting Psalm 22, uh, two notable events occurred as it was finished. He cried out, said several different things, and dismissed his spirit. Four notable events occurred afterwards. The curtain was torn, the earthquake, the saints raised, the centurion's confession, and some notable witnesses observed that it was finished, these many godly women. It felt like we were in hell. I read that quote a couple of days ago by a man who nearly died in the recent wildfire in Maui where last count I saw said 89, but they expect it to be significantly higher eventually. I've been praying, by those, uh, praying for those people affected by the disaster, by those who are seeking to help and minister to them. But I've also been struck by what a powerful picture this is of the next great historical event that's going to occur on a par with what we're reading about here, that's Jesus' return in glory. Now, it's not going to all be fire and judgment because his people are going to be raised in glory and uh, will be blessed in a renewed heaven and earth. Uh, their future is going to be one of love and joy. But for those who are still in their sins, the terrors of Maui's firestorm are going to be nothing. And yet it's going to come, and it will come for many suddenly and with no warning at all. How about you? If today were the day and Jesus returns, would you be ready? Because of what he did, what we read about this morning in our text, undergoing the judgment of God, the terrors of hell, those who are his will have nothing to fear. They will undergo transformation and know joy, peace, and glory. But for those who are not, they'll face what Jesus said, quoting from Isaiah, the everlasting burning. The people in Maui were caught unaware. Don't let that happen to you. And some, he may call away suddenly in death. He may call you away all of a sudden before he returns. Paul talks about also those who will be saved so as through fire. Christians, believers apparently, but who didn't really invest their lives in, in walking close with the Lord and serving him and will have very little to show in the world to come. As you reflect on his love displayed in these terrible hours of agony and darkness, when he was forsaken by the Father that you might not be, let his love and the love of the Father who sent him encourage your faith, strengthen your hope, and galvanize your love. Paul says he died for all that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who loved them and gave himself for him. May that describe all of us. Amen. Please stand for prayer.